Hamsters. They don't get much respect. Say the word, and most people think of furry rodents on spinning wheels. But there's much more to them than you think. The hamster has lived a secret life in science of sorts for the last half century. I'm Luke Timmerman, and you're listening to Signal. And I'm Meg Terrell. Today, we're talking hamsters, specifically the ovary cells of the female Chinese hamster, and how they helped create the modern biotech industry. Here's a shocker for you. By one estimate, 11 biotech drugs that are made using Chinese hamster ovary cells generated an incredible $57 billion in sales in 2013. New drugs manufactured in these cells are approved every year by the FDA. Wow, right? So let's step back so we can show you how these little cellular powerhouses came to be. So where to begin? Well, it's important to understand how vital living cells are to biotech companies. You should think of living cells as tiny factories. Give them raw materials like nutrients and vitamins, and they create the stuff your body needs to function, like proteins. Learn how to harness their strength, and you can spit out complex biologic drugs protein drugs in biotech speak. Lots of cells have been tasked with doing biotech spitting to make medicines. Most people have heard of embryonic stem cells. They can be programmed to morph into any type of adult cell, and they hold the promise of regenerative medicine. Then there are HeLa cells. They were taken decades ago from a woman with cancer named Henrietta Lacks. That cell line made immortal in the lab, taught scientists a great deal. Among other things, the cells helped pave the way for the polio vaccine. That advance also stirred an ethical debate captured by the incredible book by Rebecca Skloot, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is now also turning into a movie starring Oprah. Open your boxes, one, two, three. You get a call! Okay, but let's get back to the hamsters. So everyone in biotech knows these special Chinese hamster ovary cells by their abbreviated name, CHO or CHO cells. But outside of biotech and science circles, well, most people have no idea. Um, I think people are very amazed by the complexity of the biological manufacturing process and are just somehow curious about, you know, the hamster. (laughs) Where did that come into the picture? Lynn Crumman, the vice president and head of pharma technical development in the U.S. for Genentech, said she really enjoys telling kids in schools about the role of hamsters in biotech. And what those kids don't know, and maybe even some in the biotech industry don't either, is there's a fascinating backstory here. And it all started in China during the rise of Mao. Let's take a trip back through history. In 1948, an American scientist named Robert Briggs Watson snuck out some precious hamsters from China just before Mao Zedong's communist forces would have stopped such an exchange with the U.S. Monday, 6 December 1948. A busy day, and one made not less complicated and glad by the unexpected receipt of 20 hamsters from Peiping for forwarding to New York. They came down in an AAG courier plane, traveling in almost solitary splendor. The other passengers were two dachshund puppies. I'm keeping the hamsters in my bedroom, away from the dog. They seem in good spirits. Saturday, 11 December 1948. The hamsters made the trip just fine and wakened me with their chattering. Judging by the way they ate their black beans and millet and chatter all night, they are in fine health. They are cunning little animals. 
Now, without that smuggling operation and some clever work then by a breeder in upstate New York, Chinese hamster ovary cell lines might not have realized their biotech potential. They've come a long way from humble beginnings, from pests running amok in fields in China to an integral part of helping hundreds of thousands of people, many of them with chronic diseases, get complex drugs that their lives depend on. And yet no one could have predicted it when biotech got started 40 years ago. But these cells have just the right natural machinery to make many of the world's most successful biotech drugs. Treatments for cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and anemia are manufactured in endlessly dividing, hardy, versatile Cho cells. These kinds of drugs are hard to make and hard to copy. They aren't like conventional pills. A drug like aspirin is quite small. You can take that as a pill. These are injectables, very complicated molecules that require living cells to actually make them. So the living cell is actually like the factory. It is the factory. That's Jim Thomas. He's worked for more than 30 years on coaxing living cells, like those of the Chinese hamster ovary, to become more efficient, reliable factories for protein drugs. To understand why some drug manufacturing depends on cells, a rather delicate and finicky system, at least compared with an automotive assembly line, for example, first, we need to cover some of the basics. A conventional drug, like aspirin, is what scientists call a small molecule. It can be created in a carefully controlled lab environment. You mix the active compound with inert ingredients. You pack it into a pill, there's your drug. Biotech drugs aren't like that. They're large molecules. Specifically, they are proteins. They're much bigger, sometimes a thousand times bigger, and they're much more structurally complicated. The nooks and crannies have a lot to do with how the protein behaves in the body. We've learned that certain proteins can fight diseases in ways that small molecules can't, but making them is tricky. Targeted antibodies that aim for cancer cells and enzymes that perform important metabolic tasks are examples of common protein drugs. Here's how the process works. Scientists start with a gene sequence of something that contains the instructions, the code really, for making a particular protein. They insert a gene sequence into the nucleus of a living host cell. The cell has the machinery to express or build the gene sequence into a functioning protein. That's what our cells do for us all the time. But in biotech, we're hijacking that natural function of the cell to trick it into making a medicine. That makes it sound relatively easy, right? Well, it wasn't. In biotech's early days, companies could only make relatively small, structurally simple protein drugs, like genetically engineered copies of human insulin. That was still a big, big deal. Insulin was made in E. coli, a relatively simple, cheap bacterial cell line. Sticking the human gene sequence for insulin into a host cell and then coaxing the cells to churn out industrial quantities of insulin for diabetics, it was revolutionary. That advance weaned diabetics off of pig-derived insulin. Yes, before biotech drugs, we were treating diabetes with insulin we took from pigs. But human-derived insulin was less likely to provoke the immune system to have a bad reaction. It didn't look quite as foreign. As the science progressed, people wanted to make bigger and more complex protein molecules. Researchers and companies' dreams ran wild. What if they could make targeted antibody drugs against cancer? But to make them, they would need a more sophisticated host cell. Those kinds of drugs are really complex. They have big, complicated molecules hanging off their backbone that have to be folded and organized just so. And E. coli is pretty simple. 
and it can only do so much. Those folds and organization in a protein are crucially important for determining how the molecule behaves after it's injected. And it has to behave correctly to do what you want it to inside the body. Remember signal episode 12. Yep, the old mechanism of action issue. Anyhow, the important thing to understand here is that this process of making drugs inside living cells isn't just about the gene sequence, the instructions. You might have heard the phrase nature versus nurture. That means it's not all in the genes when you're making a person. Part of what person you are and become is from your genetics, but the other part is from the environment you grow up in. And you can think of these drugs like people. Part of how they turn out, of course, is from the genetic blueprint we give cells to make them. But part is the kind of cell they grow up in. And basically, if you want to grow drugs to go into humans, you have to pick a cell factory that's fast, flexible, and will spit out drugs that our bodies will accept. So scientists began looking hard at different cells from mammals. Human cells themselves might be problematic simply because they are too much like us. They could be vehicles for viruses and bacteria. At least for a while in the early days, scientists wondered if human cells made to grow immortal in the lab dish could get flipped into a cancerous state. And if any of the cancer-related proteins got mixed up in a drug batch and injected into people, that would be bad news. Obviously, no one wanted to take that chance, no matter how remote it might have been. Ideally, scientists wanted a mammalian cell line for manufacturing that would be simple and easy to genetically manipulate. One point for the hamster. It should be similar to humans, but not too similar. Two points for the hamster. And it needed to be hardy. They have to be able to live for weeks inside big, shiny stainless steel vats filled with nutrient broth. And three points for the hamster. The hamster had a lot going for it. Now let's talk a little bit about the broth. The broth carries all the vitamins and minerals and amino acids that a cell needs to survive as it would inside a body. Broth living means keeping tight control on the temperature, acidity, clean water, and so forth. They've got to keep the vats and all the pipes and tubes squeaky clean. The cells also have to breathe in a way. They need to inhale a certain amount of oxygen and exhale a certain amount of carbon dioxide. And at the end of a manufacturing run, the scientists filter out all that nutrient broth. They're left, hopefully, with a lot of purified proteins that can go into a vial and become drugs. Okay, so now we know how the hamsters got to the U.S., and we know why they were a good bet for early biotech pioneers to cultivate. And we know how they're kept alive in broth as they grow drugs. But why did Chinese hamster ovary cells emerge as the industry standard for drug manufacturing? Basically, how did these little cells get so big in the biotech world? The road to Cho as industry standard didn't go in a straight line. Geneticist Ted Puck at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Denver in the 1950s isolated and cloned Cho cell lines. And since these cells had a relatively compact genome with only 22 chromosomes, fewer than other mammals, he and others thought it would be a good model system to experiment on. Its relative simplicity would make it easier to tell what each of the genes do. Larry Chasen at Columbia University built on that work for his genetics research in the 1970s. By 1980, he developed a Cho cell line that proved versatile and hardy. Demand for those cells has continued for more than 35 years. The big break for Cho cells came with what's known as co-amplification. Scientists, through a series of experiments in the late 70s and early 80s, learned to do two important things at once. 
they could amplify a gene for a vitamin metabolizing enzyme and deliver the specific protein they wanted the cell to make. It was sort of a genetic double whammy. The result? A cell that's programmed to vacuum up the vitamins it needs to thrive, while pumping out thousands of more copies of a protein than it ordinarily would. Chasen said he was drawn to Cho initially just for basic research, but he's proud that the cells he's cultured in his lab over the years have found such wide-ranging medical use. We chose GSO cells for our research, which had nothing to do with uh, any kind of uh, industrial application. 95% of the research I do is basic research into gene expression mechanisms, and uh, it's not directed towards uh, biotechnology. So it's one of these cases where basic research produces a result that is then, by chance in a way, uh, finds application. And he's shipped his endlessly dividing cells to more than a thousand academic and business labs around the world. The cells were genetically simple. They were hardy. They could be amplified. But there was more to it. Yes. Here's Randy Kaufman. He's the director of degenerative disease research at the Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute in San Diego. As a postdoc at MIT in the early 1980s, he began to see the potential of Cho cells. Cho cells could grow either attached or in suspension. Very few other cells can grow well under both conditions. So it was very adaptable to any type of large-scale scale-up. This idea of growing cells in attachment is very important. If the cells needed to be attached to something, like beads or the surface of a lab dish, that was a problem. You'd need football fields upon football fields of industrial space to make relatively puny amounts of drug. You'd also need more complex equipment to separate out the baby from the bathwater. Genentech, the pioneering biotech company, was also intrigued by the potential of Cho cells. They started off by testing them in what they called roller bottles. And in a way, these roller bottles mimicked the natural environment that cells would grow up in. They also had surfaces that the Cho cells could attach to. The company was excited about making a stroke drug called Tissue Plasminogen Activator, or TPA. But it didn't take long for the executives to realize that it would cost them a fortune to build a factory with these roller bottles. Around that time, Randy Kaufman left MIT to be one of the first half-dozen employees at another pioneering biotech company, Boston-based Genetics Institute. Over beers with one of the founders, Kaufman made his pitch for making proteins in Cho cells. You know, I want to do mammalian cell expression in Cho cells. And he goes, oh, well, the day we ever have to make a protein in, in a, a mammalian cell is the day we're going belly up. It would be too expensive. They wouldn't grow, et cetera. But Kaufman got the last laugh. It didn't take long for him to prove that you could make protein drugs in Cho cells. But getting the cells to thrive in suspension was crucial. That made it possible to build the large stainless steel vats that you see at biotech companies today. And you can really get a lot of cells living in those vats churning out pharmaceutical-grade proteins. People in biotech call these vats bioreactors, and they look like something from a brewery. They sure do. There's just a lot more in there than yeast, hops, and water. And in a lot of ways, alcohol, beer, and wine are some of the earliest biotech products. Maybe we should do another show on that and tour a brewery while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good ones in Seattle. We actually went to one. Anyway... It was clear from early on that it was still going to cost a lot of money and take a long time to build a factory with bioreactors. Scaling up from 10 liters to 1,000 liters to 10,000 liters or more wasn't trivial. 
over the last 35 years, Cho cells have been tweaked and optimized into lean, mean manufacturing machines. Jim Thomas, the 30-year veteran of biotech drug manufacturing, going back to the early days of Genentech, said that he has seen remarkable improvements in Cho cell productivity. Protein yields have gone up by a remarkable three and sometimes four orders of magnitude. If we don't make a gram per liter uh, of, of a recombinant protein, you know, we're not doing very well. In the beginning at Genentech, scientists would be lucky to get one milligram, that's one thousandth of a gram, of the desired protein drug out of each liter in a bioreactor. It's not unusual for companies now that are more sophisticated uh, to make 10 grams per liter or more. One milligram to one gram? That's three orders of magnitude difference. And going all the way to 10 grams per liter, that's a full four order of magnitude leap. When your manufacturing is that efficient, it's a big deal for your business. Suddenly, you don't need to build such a giant expensive bioreactor to get the same amount of precious drug. It could be the difference between meeting demand for patients and falling short. After getting started at Genentech, Jim Thomas later worked on refining manufacturing processes at Amgen, another biotech giant. Now he's the CEO of a startup, Just Biotherapeutics, that's seeking to squeeze out another order of magnitude of cost savings and yield improvements. One big reason for the progress? Scientists have figured out a precise recipe of what to feed the cells to make them exceptionally good little factories. We can't feed a, these cells pizzas. I mean, they, they can't digest. We have to provide the basic nutrients, amino acids, uh, carbohydrates, glucose, uh, salts, uh, trace elements, all these things that are needed, 60 or 70 different components have to be understood and have to be added to these bioreactors for these cells to be, to be happy. If just biotherapeutics can eke out another tenfold improvement in protein drug yields, it hopes to be able to sell biotech drugs at a lower price than the ones on the market today. It could still make a profit that way, but the hope is that its products could be affordable to patients in developing countries. Despite all the advances that we've seen, there's still quite a bit of room for improvement in Cho cells. Nathan Lewis and other scientists at UC San Diego are working on a genomics-based project to further refine our understanding of the inner workings of the Cho cell that enables it to be so efficient at pumping out protein drugs. Both Larry Chase and, and Randy Kaufman said they're excited about the future possibilities of using CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology to further enhance the Cho cells. So it's not hard to imagine editing the Cho cells so they're more effective at secreting the proteins they make, or that they're better at releasing proteins with just the right sugar structures that are so important to making them work properly. Or maybe you could edit them so they don't sometimes commit cell suicide through an ordinary process known as apoptosis. I asked Phil Sharp, a Nobel Prize winning biologist at MIT, if he thinks we'll ever move beyond using living cells to make biotech drugs and whether we'll ever be able to synthesize them from scratch in the lab like conventional pills. He chuckled. No. <laughs> Once you have the complexity of the proteins that we're interested in producing, antibodies and, and therapeutic factors are very extensively modified by carbohydrate and various other things. And those pathways are elaborate and they're integral parts of mammalian cells. So I, I don't see us moving. Uh, I suspect you'll stay in mammalian cells and that the quality of the protein will be higher and 
that's terribly important in using it as a therapeutic. The more you realize how much these humble little hamster cells naturally do right, and how much of it we still don't fully understand, the more humbling it gets. Thanks for tuning into Signal. We are a production of STAT, a national news publication reporting from the frontiers of health and medicine. Our show is produced by Jocelyn Gonzalez, and Signal's senior editor is Jeff Delvisio. We want to hear from you. Email us at signal at statnews.com or tweet us using the hashtag SignalPod. Next time, the race to protect the world from Zika. <laughs>